Good morning, everybody. The House State Affairs Committee will please come to order. Uh, would you take the roll? Here. Representative Tallarico. Here. Representative Stewart. Here. Representative Tapio. Here. Representative Christ Tonkin. Here. Chair Here. 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 Department of Corrections first. No. That, which the other one? The correction. <laughs> Administration. Administration. Okay, please come forward, sir. What's so we'll see about getting you in some kind of a job. <laughs> we'll, we'll figure it out after you get here. Great. Uh, good morning, sir. Please identify yourself and, and tell us why you should be uh, appointed to the position as the governor appointed you to. My name is Sheldon Fisher, and I've been uh, invited by the governor to serve as the commissioner of the Department of Administration. And I kind of reflect on it on a few things that I might uh, share with you this morning about myself. And I, if you'll indulge me, I thought I would tell you a little story about my mother. Um, when I was a young man, we grew up in a little farm in Oregon. We had chickens and pigs and horses and cows that had to be tended, but we also, in our the back of our property, we had a creek and we had a bunch of blackberries. And so when the blackberries were in season, and I'm one of eight children, uh, all of us had a chore to pick a gallon of blackberries every day. And when I was about nine and my brother was 11, we decided that we kind of had it with that. And, uh, and so we packed up our backpacks and our property was close to a national forest and we decided we'd run away. And so we left and we spent the day and we were in the forest and we built a fire and we cooked dinner and we were having a great time. And uh, it was about 10 or 10.30 we decided maybe we probably ought to go home. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so we did. We went home and we walked into our house and my mother, uh, I'll never forget, she smiled at us and she said, um, there's your gallon buckets and there's a flashlight and you'll find it's easier to pick blackberries in the daylight than at night. <laughs> and uh, she sent us back out to pick our gallon of blackberries. And uh, my point there is that um, hard work and, um, and follow through and diligence were things that um, she taught me and reinforced. And, um, and if there's any attribute that I think I bring to the jobs that I've had in my career, it's this sense of dedication and hard work and, and a commitment to the task. Um, my career, after graduating from, uh, from law school, I, I, uh, I went to work for um, a law firm for a few years and uh, decided that maybe the practice of law wasn't really where my passion was. And so I spent most of my career in the telecommunications industry working for Sprint uh, rather for Hughes Electronics first and then Sprint and then came to Alaska to work for Alaska Communications initially. Um, and uh, I, I've enjoyed uh, the telecommunications industry significantly. Um, I enjoy the complexity that, that it brings and if there's sort of a couple of attributes um, in my career that I would point out. One is uh, I do believe that I um, am accustomed to getting things done in a challenging environment. Um, the, divi the division I was responsible for at Sprint um, was, uh, it was an organization that the company had invested about $1.7 billion in and the business model had kind of failed and so we had to retrench 
when I was given the division, we had to retrench and, and shrink in size and then re redefine the purpose of the organization. And, and we did that quite successfully. Um, really, in fact, the foundation of that organization became the foundation of Sprint's wireless data strategy for the next uh, uh, seven or eight years. And so um, quite pleased with that, with that work. And, and I'm accustomed to being presented with uh, operational and fiscal challenges and finding a way through them. Uh, the decision to come to Alaska was actually more driven by uh, a desire to come to Alaska than necessarily the job. I had an exciting opportunity at Sprint at the time, but uh, I'm from Oregon and my wife's from Colorado, and when a colleague invited me to consider coming to Alaska, we came up here. We actually came in in January, but it just felt very comfortable and felt like home to us compared to uh, the flatlands of, of Kansas. And so we came, we have uh, seven children. We had six at the time. We have uh, seven children, six of them are daughters, one son, and uh, we've made Alaska our home. And, I, and we, uh, we very much love it, and I, I, uh, I don't think you could blast my family out of Alaska. Um, in terms of the position, I've been on the job now for about, I think this is my fifth week, if I'm not mistaken. and. Uh, and I guess the thing that I've taken away more than anything is just how much I enjoy it. I, I expected it to be uh, a, an interesting time for the state, but I didn't really understand or expect how, uh, how enjoyable the work would be. The issues are complex, the people are smart, um, and uh, it's, uh, I, I, I enjoy the work that, that we have in the department. Um, and I will say I'm glad to be here at this time. That may sound funny, but uh, you know the governor I think has assembled a very smart and uh, diverse um, cabinet, and the challenges that the budget presents uh, is a becomes a framework for all of our decisions that I think allows us, even though we've got diverse opinions and different perspectives, I think we coalesce around a desire to really. Um, redefine the state and, and, and the operations of the state in a way that, that we can sustain and support. And so um, I'm uh, pleased to be here and pleased to be here at this time in the state's history and, and hope to make a difference. In the time I've been here, I think I've shared with many of you that I have five priorities that I've identified for my department. Um, the first has to do with uh, the way we manage our labor force. And there's a number of dimensions to that. Um, but in particular, I think it's important that we preserve our best employees, ensure that as we, as we right-size government that our, our best and brightest and, and most capable employees have uh, a, a long-term opportunity here. And secondly, I think it's important that we think about how to make those employees more productive, and that is a, a joint effort by both uh, the employees and, the, and management to to find efficiencies and to change the way we do business. The second priority is to continue to, to address the health care costs. Uh, I think you all are very aware that the health care costs and challenges in Alaska uh, are substantially higher than in other places in the country. And, um, uh, and I think we've, the, the prior administration had some success in uh, 
changing that cost curve. There were, though, some challenges that, that remain and continued work to be done. And so that, that will be a second priority for my department. The third is uh, IT, and, and there's a number of dimensions to that. Um, information technology can be an enabler of a lot of things in the state and a lot of efficiencies. Uh, we obviously have a duty to protect and, and ensure that the, that the data that we collect is secure and, and, uh, and not at risk. Um, and uh, we're in the midst now of, of reconceptualizing how we think IT should be delivered in the state. I think that we can do it more efficiently and more effectively. Some of that savings, uh, candidly, I would say to you, ought to be reinvested in additional um, IT systems and services to enhance uh, productivity. And some of them, of course, need to be returned to the, to the state in terms of cost savings. The fourth area is purchasing. We purchase about $1.9 billion of goods and services in the state, and even a modest savings there, 5% would be nearly $100 million. And so I think there's uh, some real meaningful uh, opportunity to improve our purchasing. And then last is how we manage and lease and utilize our facilities. Uh, and that includes both uh, using the space that we lease more effectively, potentially leasing less space, and attempting to um, negotiate more favorable rates, perhaps uh, uh, negotiating for a less expensive property. And so those are the areas, as, as you can see from those priorities, they're all largely driven by the impact that they have on the budget as a whole. And, um, and as I say, I find it interesting and compelling, and I would be very pleased to serve in this position for, for some time. Thank you very much for your, for your testimony. I don't have many questions. I think you made a, a very good presentation. But what's the most surprising thing you discovered when you walked into your new office? Well, um, I guess the most surprising thing was the diversity of issues. Um, the Department of Administration covers everything from public defenders to IT to purchasing to retirement benefits. Um, and just the, the breadth of the scope of the job was um, Probably when the, when the governor invited me to, to consider it, I hadn't really anticipated the breadth of issues that we would deal with. But that's part of what makes it fun and interesting. The breadth of the job. Yeah. I can relate to that a little bit. I got myself elected uh, what, in 2002, reported to work in January 2003. My first customer, as it were, walked in to see me. And this person, a lady, wanted to talk to me about body piercing and tattooing. <laughs> <laughs> and she left, and you know how it is here, the next customer came in and wanted to talk to me about the gas pipeline. So I thought, you know, there's a lot of diversity here, a lot of stuff going on down here. It just goes from, you know, from one end to the other. So I, I can appreciate what you said. Any questions from the committee? Yeah. Vice Chair Keller. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for being willing to step forward, and it is a challenge. You're, uh, you described the, uh, your gallon of blackberries here and with five prongs, and, uh, and I uh, appreciate, and, uh, you know, it's a good, good approach and everything. I just want to emphasize uh, that uh, the uh, health, you called it cost containment uh, element, is huge. And I think you sit in a place where you can really affect that. And, uh, uh, you know, personally, I think it's... Uh, 
maybe shooting a little low to say cost containment, but I don't know exactly what you mean by that. But, but we just uh, really need to be willing at this time in so many areas in our government to be able to look at restructuring and reforming and just a, a fresh approach. And, and that one in particular, I think that uh, uh, I just want to encourage you and, and uh, when we check to see if your can of blackberries is full, that's the primary one I'm going to be looking at, <laughs> you know. So I mean, I just uh, if you want to comment on that, it just seems like of the five, the top two, you know, are, are really huge. You know, workforce management, productivity, efficiency, that that's that's huge. Yeah. And, and, and but healthcare is kind of connected, and and it's even huger, I guess. Yeah. I hear what I would say. So. No, I I agree with you, and uh, you know, it's it, uh, it, it is. Similar to the whole department, healthcare itself is a huge and complex issue, and uh, cost containment probably is not the right word because that assumes that we're going to sort of stay where we are. A better description is probably we need to bend the cost curve and we need to reduce cost and drive that down. And, and so I I share your sentiment, and and likewise I think it's a, a huge driver. <laughs> Any other questions from the committee? Representative Grunberg. Thank you, Mr. S Mr. Chair. I'm sure you, like the tattooed lady, will leave an indelible impression. Use a pun to go to jail. Go ahead. Um, I, I appreciated also your coming by and talking to us. Yes. And, and also Mr. Taylor, too. Um, the, uh, the thing that I, I think may affect all of us directly um, personally, as much as anything else you've mentioned, Mr. Fisher, uh, is the quality of the health care that the people around here receive. And uh, I know that in some cases uh, the state has looked primarily at the cheapest. Usually you get what you pay for. And I'd rather pay a little more and get really good service because we've had a lot of complaints in speaking personally on down, and you and I have discussed yeah. this. I think it is most important that the Alaskans uh, across the board, but particularly today uh, with respect to the uh, health care providers, uh, insurers that, that you cover, you look to the quality as much as the cost. Any comments? Well, I, I certainly I think that we have to give our employees and our retirees a, a level of medical service that is sufficient and adequate, and I agree with that. I, I guess I don't necessarily feel like that quality and cost go hand in hand in the healthcare industry. I think that there are a fair number of specialties and um, uh, uh, situations where the quality of service outside of Alaska, for example, may be substantially higher, or at least equal to, and is substantially less expensive. And so the question, I, I don't disagree at all with your sentiment. The question is we have to uh, provide a level of care that is appropriate and adequate, but I do think there's an opportunity to provide that at a reduced cost, even from where we are today. Um, I, I do understand, and on a case-by-case -case basis, and I've met with both uh, 
uh, retirees and, and their association, there are scenarios where I do think that there's a, some quality issues and we need to address that in our network and I'm not going to disagree with you. But as an overall premise, I start this discussion believing that we can maintain a high level of quality and still reduce cost. May I follow up, please? Follow up, please. You know, in the, in the delivery of health care, there's somewhat of a disconnect because if you examine it, it's a three-legged stool. You've got the people who are the customers. You've got the people who are the payers, who are the insurance companies. But the third leg are the providers, and they're often overlooked. Uh, in the lower 48, one of the ways the insurers lower cost is by squeezing out the providers, forcing them into big organizations, destroying the time-honored Alaskan tradition, which is a different model of health care delivery. We're not in large HMOs, the Kaisers and the groups like that, but we're a bunch of independent providers, uh, not just the Costco's, but the Juno drug down the street here, the individual doctors, and they are feeling the pinch. And if we're not careful, we're going to significantly change the delivery of health care in Alaska for the worse because the medical profession here is largely an aging profession. The average age of doctors is going up and people are not able to make it when insurers, for example, delay the payment of the, the bills and, and controvert things. And this is not only a problem from just the pure health care, but from workers' comp, um, from the, the, the question of whether certain procedures are allowable, all the way down. And a new law was just passed in California requiring insurers, unless they controvert something and don't pay it within 24 hours, it's conclusively presumed that they will approve it. And Governor Brown just signed that. And I urge you to, to work with the provider association, the dental society, the medical association and those, and they will tell you that people are going to be driven out of this state and you'll save your money and the insurers will continue to make money and the docs will leave. Well, certainly um, we want a robust and a healthy medical profession in Alaska. Um, I, I agree with you 100%. Um, and I think that the facts will kind of depend on the specialty and the practice and the individual and, and how that all plays out. I guess when I, from where I sit, um, health care is, is risen in Alaska, the cost of health care uh, dramatically faster than in the lower 48. And we're sitting uh, with a, um, an unfunded liability of uh, $10 billion overall and Three and a half of that is associated with health care, and I just, um, I, I, I'll be happy to work with you and with the doctors, but I just feel like we've got to find a different way of delivering services. Through the chair, please keep that commitment. All I'm asking is that you work with these other people, and I'd be like to be kept informed. I'm not on the Hess committee, but uh, since you're here today, in your role as the payor through the state. What you do will make a lot of difference, and I hope you keep that commitment. 
and I'm available anytime, and so is my staff. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Vice Chair Keller. Yeah, if I could, uh, just one question. Medicaid, everybody in the room knows, is the biggest payer of health care services in the state of Alaska. Uh, and it's, it is the elephant in the room when you start talking about health care. And um, we pay by a system fee for services that uh, um, I, I believe is, is, is really flawed, needs to be looked at. My question is, have you worked with health and social services? Do you plan to work with Department of Health and Social Services to look at the uh, method of, you know, paying back uh, providers? I mean, paying providers on a fee-for-service uh, basis has gotten out of hand, uh, you know, at least from my perspective, and uh, seems like, uh, you know, are you going to work on that one? <laughs> Through the chair, yes. So uh, Commissioner Davidson and I actually were in a meeting yesterday on this very subject. Um, it's early days for us, but uh, we do recognize that, that there's a lot of overlap between those two systems, the commercial system and Medicare Medicaid system, and so we are looking for opportunities for how we work together to, to address both of those issues. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And Mr. Fisher, I, I really do appreciate what you said about purchasing. I know we had an opportunity to talk about that the other day, and, and I, I think you're spot on that there's there's actually millions out there that can be saved. I, I, I appreciate that. And you had mentioned facility use, and uh, I guess my observation is, is we, we're not very uniform um, as far as the facilities that, that the state manages and uses, office space and things like that. And um, A few years ago, I, I seem to recall some conversations about trying to actually get that a little more uniform, a little more efficient, and, and you, had, you had talked about maybe all of the buildings that we do and the leases and everything. Could, could you elaborate on that a little, a little bit, expand what, on what your plan might be there? Through the chair. Um, so, yes, uh, the department, uh, before I arrived, uh, had implemented, there's two, I'll answer that question, there's two dimensions to that. First of all, the department had adopted universal space standards, and those were a, a uniform space uh, that would be, uh, defined and, and um, established for each employee. Those space standards resulted in uh, placing more people into the same square footage, and, and we have implemented, I think, 10 or 12 of those in the, in the last year or two. Um, and so uh, I, I think you probably know those standards have not been without controversy. Some people have objected and, and had some concerns about it. Um, and in fact, we have a, a um, uh, unfair labor practice that's been lodged against us because we did not negotiate the claim as we didn't negotiate that. Now, I don't think we have an obligation to negotiate space standards, um, but nevertheless, in part because of uh, the administration and the work we're doing to redefine our budget and rethink our departments, we've kind of put a pause on, on implementing more space standards until we get through uh, and, and really understand what departments are going to look like and therefore I wanted to try to avoid a scenario where we would build out a space only to come back a year or two later and rebuild it because the department had reconceptualized how they're operating. So that gave us also an opportunity to sit down with, um, with labor representatives and talk about the space standards and why we're doing it and, and I guess I would just share with you that <coughs> the standards we adopted were very similar to uh, the standards that, for example, BP has implemented in North America, so I, I, and and actually larger than a lot of other um, Fortune 500 companies. So, from my perspective, I don't think that we've tried to um, force 
something that is unreasonable upon the employees. Um, but the other argument I've made that I think um, does have some uh, resonates with people is that in, in this environment, our budget will be defined by a reality uh, of the revenue the state can, can, can create. And in that scenario, it seems to me that we should be leveraging every lever we can to reduce as many costs as we can uh, that don't impact people. I mean, we should be trying to save money everywhere and, and to the extent we can avoid laying off people or reducing people, that's what we should be trying to do. And I think that argument does kind of resonate. And so um, we're working through that and I am reasonably confident that, that as the administration finalizes our work, we'll start implementing state space standards again and, and have the support of the employees as part of that process. Um, the other issue that we sort of touched on is that um, you know, some property we own, some property we lease, some property we lease is class A space, some property we lease is others. And so we're trying to look at all of that to say, you know, what is an intelligent way of thinking about uh, uh, the, the space that we own and the space we lease? And so um, we'll be looking at that and, um, y uh, you know, I, I hope, uh, not that this is necessarily a good thing, but if if the economy has the downturn that people are forecasting, that should give us some negotiating leverage and hopefully we can we can obtain better leases and, and reduce costs there as well. Thank you. Any follow-up? Um, no. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Mr. Fisher. Anything from anybody else? Well, I've got just something you don't need to answer now because it's, it's too specific. But uh, I've had some uh, comment from my pharmacist uh, back in Anchorage uh, about prescription drugs, you know, the generic uh, versus name brand. And apparently the uh, retired Alaska em employees, they have a choice for name brand versus uh, generic drugs. And the difference might be for prescription whatever, uh, like $300 for name brand and like 20 bucks for right. uh, generic. And uh, there's a <coughs> as I a debate here about uh, you know taking away from somebody the choice there, but, but that's a, uh, apparently about half of the retirees who come in to get a prescription for something uh, they want to choose the generic and and as most people know generic and brand name are, are exactly the same the color might be different right. but that's about and so could you just uh, uh, look into that while I've got you here. Well, I, I guess I'll, this is actually an issue that has not come to me, and so I will look into it. I will say that uh, it's my opinion that um, if there is no medical difference between the drugs, and I agree with you, generic versus name brand, there's no, it's the same substance, then there's no, uh, I, would, I would not view that as a diminishment to insist people um, choose a generic brand. So we'll look into that and, and, and evaluate that. Thank you. Uh, no, no, I say she must have, she had a question. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> thank, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I actually had a bill on that subject a couple of years ago, and I was assured by the department that everything is going to be fixed. Well, apparently it's not. Uh, Everything Vasquez. Uh, Mr. Fisher, thank you for uh, coming to see me and discussing your priorities and your background. Um, first of all, I want to say for the record, I appreciate the energy and uh, the clear priorities you have for um, improving efficiencies and reducing waste uh, within state government. Uh, the, the Department of Administration is often overlooked 
by many people, but it has a critical function because it has so many responsibilities. And in a way, it's kind of the brain of, of, of state government in that it, you know, it oversees the leasing of property and it oversees purchasing and oversees personnel and oversees so many functions that are just critical to good functioning of government. So I appreciate your very clear priorities and um, your ability to, um, your enthusiasm to, uh, to work on these priorities, really appreciate it. Um, I omitted, and I, it didn't occur to me when I met with you yesterday, that to mention that HB 39, uh, I am in the Education Committee, uh, passed that committee, and it, it concerns um, a wellness program to be implemented uh, voluntarily uh, for state employees. Uh, I do have an MBA in Healthcare Services Administration, and I've done research with regard to wellness programs. In the private sector, for every dollar that is spent in a wellness program, most private companies will see at least $2, if not more, 3 or 4 depending upon how strenuous and how complete that wellness program is, is implemented. So um, although it's voluntary, it's a step in the right direction. So that could be a way of reducing costs in health care. And I would love to talk to you more about, this is not the appropriate forum, but um, I did spend several years dealing with the Medicaid program in the commissioner's office and was a prosecutor of public assistance uh, programs. So I know a lot about HES and I uh, welcome you to knock on my door and discuss some of those issues. Um, but I, I uh, appreciate your focus on efficiencies and reducing waste. Thank you very much. Anything else from anybody else on the committee? Representative Grunberg? This is more directed at the chair than you. Um, Am I being appointed to something? Or? No, no. Um, <laughs> on the generic drugs, my first set term in the legislature, 85-86, I authored the generic drug law. It used to be you couldn't get generics unless the prescription said you could, we flipped it around so that you can get it unless it's prohibited under the prescription and the sign that's up, that's part of that legislation too. And I didn't realize people were having problems, Mr. Chair. Maybe that's something that somebody, this committee or somebody else at the state level or whatever should take a look at because, um, you know, that's something that should be implemented. And, and as the chair said, it may be beyond your ability to respond today, but I hope you do respond, at least from your department's point of view, in writing to the chair, and then maybe you can distribute that to us. Yes, of course. I'd like to follow up on this. I would. Uh, uh, later. The, whole, the point is, a lot of money is apparently being wasted, uh, you know, for something that uh, we could get it much more, less expensively, and people get the same product. <coughs> Anything else from the committee? I'd like to thank you very much for your testimony. Uh, we will be signing a report today, both for you and Mr. Taylor, and this does not indicate how any of us will vote yes or no uh, on the joint hearing, our, our joint session of, of our legislature. This simply means that we heard what you had to say here. We had an opportunity to ask some questions. So again, 
All right, thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, one oh. more thing. Representative Keller. Yeah, I move that we uh, put uh, Sheldon Fisher's application for confirmation as uh, Department of Administration Commissioner to the full body for consideration. Thank you again. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I'm going to, in the interest of time, we can fill out the paperwork after you uh, Would you please join us up here for the next one on the hot seat? What have we got here? Oh, I'm, I got a note here, very important. We need to thank Representative Grunberg for bringing the goodies to eat here. And as a token of my appreciation, uh, anybody who testifies here may have one. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, please introduce yourself. Tell us what By you the way, Mr. Chair, yeah. on that, the intern's phone has been destroyed. So <laughs> what now? Wasn't this because of the cell phone? Yeah. Uh -oh. yeah. I'm kidding. We have a great, by the way, Mark, stand up. This is Mark Simon, my intern, who's doing a great job. <laughs> Thank you, Roger. Yeah, keep the goodies coming. <laughs> Thank you. Please introduce yourself and tell us what you've been appointed to and why you'd like to have the job and why you should. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for the record, my name is Ron Taylor, and I'm the uh, commissioner for the Department of Corrections. Um, I would say the same thing that uh, the prior commissioner said, but I think uh, our focus is going to be a little bit differently. Um, corrections is a very unique uh, area, and for me, it wasn't something that I really started out doing. Uh, my, uh, my dad was a police officer, and I didn't want to have anything to do with police or, <laughs> or any other work whatsoever. But when I went to college, um, Something happened. Uh, I was supposed to be a stati statistics major. I really love math and statistics, and so um, I was I was doing well in statistics and uh, got a bug for uh, criminal justice or justice. Started taking a few classes and really fell in love with it. And so when I came up here in the military and, and after I finished my service, I started as a part-time probation officer with uh, the Department of Health and Social Services in the Alcohol Safety Action Program. Little did I know the impact that that program would have on my life. I always say that the former, uh, my former supervisor there sentenced me to 18 years. She said <laughs> that I could never leave, and I remember saying to her, yeah, you only got me for two years and then I'm out of here, and she just laughed. Well. Little did I know I would serve my full 18 years uh, with the ASAP program, five years as a probation officer, an additional 13 years as taking over and overseeing that program. It afforded me the opportunity to, to take a very in-depth look at not just what we were doing, but our impact in the, uh, the whole criminal justice arena. For me, it was something um, that was an eye-opening experience because I had a unique view, not inside of corrections, but able to see from the outside of um, what was going on in our entire justice system and looking at ways that we can improve that. And I thought we had done over at the ASAP program some pretty creative things um, to manage cases because no matter what probation department that you go to across the country, what you're going to find is the same two common denominators. Everyone's going to complain about their caseload, and then they're going to say, we need more people, regardless of the size of their caseload. And so 
I, I found that to be true at the ASAP program. You know, our, we got high cases and we need more people. But in, a, in an area like that, you have to work smarter and not harder. And so we were able to do some very creative things with our case management system that allowed us to manage quite a few cases. Well, I was able to bring that over to the uh, parole board, and, and I will often say the stories that when I first walked into the parole board office as the executive director, I was shocked at what I saw. I saw a paper that um, just blew me away. The type of packets that each uh, parole board member would have to read was about one to two inches thick, and it was... Um, a total of about 60 packets that each parole board member had to read. And they were given basically a week, almost two weeks to read that, and then we'd have hearings on those. Well, who did the work? The persons who had to do the work were actually the institutional probation officers back in the institution and other support staff that would help them copy those six different times. And just imagine the volume of that uh, every month having to deal with that across the state. And one of the first things that I did was said, we need to look at a, a different way to streamline that process, uh, potentially going to computers and putting it on jump drive. It took me about a year to be able to get uh, to that point, a year and a half. But now uh, you can pull up the uh, person on the computer you can look at any of the documents that you need to see on the computer. And what we used to do is, after the hearing with all that paper, you shred it. What a waste of resources. Um, when I went to probation and parole as the director, um, it was interesting watching what we were doing. I, I think that we have some of the most dedicated probation officers and correctional officers that you will find in the country. And I really am uh, pleased to be uh, sitting in this chair to not only lead those uh, men and women of the Department of Corrections, but to learn from them and uh, to support them in any way that I can. Uh, at probation and parole, one of the things that I learned was how important it is about direction, to make sure that everybody is going in the same direction. And we had been in a mentality or a, an area of where we were really focused on enforcement, and our officers were doing their job. We were enforcing. So when there was a violation, we'd enforce that violation, we'd bring them back, and um, we had a revolving door in terms of recidivism and a revolving door in terms of non-completion of their probation and parole requirements. So I actually changed the focus of probation and parole by saying we need to focus not on failure, we need to focus on success. And in focusing on success, we need to do our jobs to help people be successful while they're on probation and parole. Now, is that across the board that we've, we've made that shift? No, but for the most part, um, even the performance review will tell you that in the field, we've done a pretty good job in shifting the focus from surveillance to uh, reentry to being successful while you're on probation and parole, and you've seen that. Our, our um, completion rates have gone from the mid to low 40s up to 66% in terms of people completing their probation and parole requirements. 
Is that enough? Absolutely not. We still have tons of work to do. And so as a deputy commissioner then, I, uh, I had the pleasure of overseeing the institutions and probation and parole, as well as our academy and programs. Of all of the, the things that I've done, the, probably the most challenging is the institutions because they are a 24-hour institution. There is absolutely always something going on inside of an institution every single day. There are issues that you would never even think about or have had to think about when it comes to medical, when it comes to um, um, grievances that uh, the inmates are going to file, health care or just basic food, for example, or security issues. It is a multitude and a range of, of things that you learn on the institutional side that I think um, you just take for granted. You put somebody inside the institution, they're being taken care of, and you don't realize all of the processes that actually occur to keeping not only them safe, but also the officers and the other staffs that are involved in um, that whole institutional setting and what really makes that up. One of the things that I found fascinating was watching um, even our institutional mentality, whereas when a person comes into the institution, our job is to get them to the door. And I'm going, now, wait a minute. That, that, we've got to be more than that. Um, our, our job should not be just getting them outside the door and waiting for them to come back in. Our job should be, uh, once they come inside the institution, helping them discharge successfully out of our system completely. And so that's, that's the bigger challenge that we have before us in terms of, of the Department of Corrections to make sure that holistically we're looking at that person when they come inside the door and everybody takes an interest in that person when they're coming in to make sure that they're being successful. Yes, there are some people that obviously when they come into our system, um, they're so dangerous that programming or anything else that we're going to do for them is not going to help them and they need to be um, locked up for our safety and their safety. But the va that's not the vast majority of the people that come through our system. The vast majority of the people that come through our system have issues that they need to have addressed and um, I'll be honest as a department I don't think that we have been and had been as proactive as we could have been in terms of addressing that. So we've, we've sort of shifted over the last couple of years our system as a whole so that it is more holistic. It is looking at more reentry and it's focused on that person from the moment that they walk inside the door to try and say how can we make this person successful not just inside the institution but carry the same work that we're doing inside the institution out into the field if they're going to probation and parole or carry that same work that we're doing in the, in the institution out into the community where most of them, 95% of them are going to return into their community anyway and it's a matter of how we have them returning. Do we want them to be better off when they return or do we want them to be better criminals when they return? And I submit to you that we want to make sure that we're addressing their risk and their needs and um, having our community partners step up to work with them even before they leave to be released into the community. Very good. Thank you. Any comments from anybody on the committee? Yeah, we'll
I jumped right in last time. Left Representative Stutes. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, do you have any programs in place or any um, potential ideas of any programs in working with other departments, um, say um, health and social services or any of the other um, departments that might be pertinent in order to prevent people with mental illness from taking up so much space in our jail system? Uh, through the chair to represent the students, you know, that's probably one of the most difficult things that we have to do. Unfortunately, the Department of Corrections is the largest mental health provider in the state, and in most states, it's that case. Um, we have uh, not only partnered with um, Health and Social Services, but also the Trust to um, work on programming inside the institution and build a, a huge um, accompaniment of of mental health services inside the institution, but also there's um, our um, Institutional Discharge Plus program. We work collaboratively with the uh, mental health courts to help people transition out of our system, and we also look at, uh, work with um, other departments in terms of our assess, plan, identify, and coordinate so that we are doing a better job of transitioning people within their last 90 days inside the institution to community providers and making sure that we stay with them for at least their first 30 to 60 days outside of the uh, institutions and that they're connected to those services. So we're doing that. Um, like most services in the Department of Corrections, has it been enough? Absolutely not. And are we meeting all of the full programming needs that we possibly could? I'd probably be the first to say no. I mean, when you look at our programming budget, um, we were at a crime summit yesterday, and for programs, we spent about 2.9% of our budget on programs. So we have a long way to go in terms of being able to improve that. But there are some things in place, and we need to continue to work with those other departments to, to strengthen that. I, I, I would say it's challenging in a, uh, in a time period like this when there's a budget crunch. but. We should be invested in people's success, and so those things that we can do that can help people be successful and that we're seeing great benefits from, we need to find ways to do more of that, and, and we will do that. Follow up, Mr. Chair. Follow up, please. Thank you. Um, are there any, um, when, when inmates are taken into the system initially, do you have any program in place to assess whether or not there is mental illness present? There is um, there's screenings that's done uh, when a person is intake into one of our institutional facilities. Yes, ma'am. Um, I think some of the struggles that we run into is um, if that person is presenting with those mental health issues then at that particular time, then we're actively working with them. If they're not, but they start decompensating while they're inside of our institution, uh, we, we really have to depend then on our correctional officers and other staff to be able to recognize those signs so that we can get them the appropriate mental health care. And so um, do we have enough mental health providers inside of our system? Probably not. And so those are some of the things that that's the challenge in looking at our system. Um, we, we had um, the first performance review that was done on the department and across the board it said that we were minimally staffed across the board. And so for me, the challenge is 
what it would it take to have a fully functioning Department of Corrections with the appropriate staffing level. We've asked for the same um, reviewers or auditors that, that did that, that performance review to come in and do, do a full staffing analysis. And I think to have that along with our um, performance review will help us look at what we need to put our priorities on as we move forward in terms of our budget and how we um, continue to look at either combining services or improving services as we move forward. One last comment, Mr. Chair? Mm -hmm. Please. Thank you. Um, I know that you go back and forth to Anchorage, and I just would like to take this moment to say, first of all, I appreciate everything you do. You do not have an easy job, and you're not working. Sometimes the people you're working with are, I'm sure, quite difficult. And, and if you have an opportunity before you go back to Anchorage, I would certainly like to have a chance to speak with you a little bit further. Absolutely. Thank uh, you. Very good. Uh, Reverend Keller, did you have a comment? <clears throat> it is a comment, okay. not, a, not really a question, <laughs> and I appreciate you indulging me, but I just uh, want to say that, uh, you know, it's kind of responding actually to Representative Stutes, but uh, he, uh, Ron is on the uh, Justice Commission, Justice Reform Commission has been formed, and, and he has been working in that context with the Department of um, Health Social Services and the Mental Health Trust on those tough issues, and I... I guess if I have a question is, uh, you know, um, not a, again, it's more of a comment, but observation, I guess, is that the challenge you've got really is uh, workforce development. I mean, like you said, there's been a transformation of philosophies on, on where we're going and, and getting that spread across the state into different uh, institutions and corrections that are isolated uh, at some level, you know, it's a it's a real that's a real chore, and I wish you well at it. And uh, it's I see it as, uh, but I but mostly I just want to say I vouch for uh, uh, Ron Taylor. I've, I've been impressed with his heart and his philosophy, and I I look forward to good things. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Anybody else in the committee? <coughs> any yeah. uh, Mr. Taylor, I'm sorry that we haven't met and we haven't discussed. Uh, anyway, your appointment to this position so I do have some questions that maybe I would have asked if we had met in private in my office uh, which campus you indicate the University of Florida BA degree criminal justice 1986 which campus to the chair to represent advanced um, uh, the University of Florida is in Gainesville Florida That's what That's I where was that. yeah. and there is a gap I, I of, I don't know what happened, but your first date of employment is 9-17-1990. So um, what did you do during those four years from 86 to 90? I was in the military, and then I worked some part-time jobs. Oh, okay, because yeah. I didn't oh, see it in your resume. <laughs> oh, I, I just included my state employment. But, uh, yeah, I was in the military for a couple of years in, in infantry, and then I worked part-time jobs until I got on with the state. And aside from um, the mental health issue, which has been discussed, what are your other priorities for the department? Reentry management is the biggest priority for the department, um, or I should say one of the biggest. Um, obviously, making sure that people are successful when they come in is something that you've already heard me allude to. Uh, Medicaid is the, the uh, priority that the governor said he wants to do, and so Medicaid expansion inside of our system is also a priority that we need to focus on. 
And the third priority that you heard me talk about already is the staffing issue. Um, we're minimally staffed across the board. We have officers, uh, whether it be COs or probation officers, or even our administrative staff that are doing an incredible job. But we need to make sure that um, that job that we're asking them to do is the right job. I think that sometimes we load people up with different priorities that we need to do a better job of helping to streamline what that job is and making sure that they have the resources that they need in order to be effective in the job. So those are the top priorities at the moment for the for our, for our department. And you mentioned just a few minutes ago the justice reform, uh, well, performance review. Uh, has that been completed or? Yes, ma'am. There's a full uh, department performance review that's on uh, LBNA's website. Mm -hmm. And it basically summarized the, the, the mission of the department in three phases, secure confinement, reformative programs, and supervisory entry. And in each of those areas, the department was rated as being uh, efficient and effective. And um, with the resources that uh, we have, they committed the department for what we were able to provide, especially in programming. Um, back in 2007, we had one program for uh, substance abuse, which was a residential substance abuse treatment program in two locations, Wildwood and Highland Mountain. That was the only program that we had. That has now changed to where we have one of the most robust and comprehensive programming systems in the nation. So, um, you know, we take very, uh, very good pride in being able to offer programming to those persons who are in our system and to help them be more successful as they're there. Thank you. Any other priorities? When we're talking about the, the justice reinvestment piece of this, that's going to be the biggest priority because it really is going to reshape how we do business throughout our system. It's going to change um, how our officers are supervising people when they're on probation and parole. It's going to require that the community step up and be more of an active participant in our working relationship to help those persons transition. And I think um, that is one of the biggest areas where we have not been as successful at working with our native organizations and uh, other community stakeholders to help transition um, minorities, especially who are overrepresented in our system, back into the community and help them stay into the community. Follow up. Uh, does that include job training? I would assume it would, but. Through the chair, Representative Vasquez, absolutely. Employment and job training, housing, um, the benefits that they need to obtain, yes, ma'am, all of that is included in that. Okay, thank you. Any other anybody in the committee? Representative Calarigo. Um, thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you, Mr. Taylor. I, I just want to mention that you did receive a certificate from the Army for exceptional meritorious achievement, which I think is a big thing, and I just want to recognize your service. Um, thank you, sir. We certainly appreciate that. I, I always appreciate that. I'm not a veteran myself, but I appreciate your service very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks, sir. Anybody else? Representative Keller. I move uh, that we, Ron Taylor's application for confirmation as the Commissioner of Department of Corrections to the full body for consideration. Very good. And uh, as I said before, uh, 
what we do here has no bearing on how we vote during the joint session, either yes or no. So uh, we won't know what happens until we have the joint session on you or any of the other appointees. Uh, thank you very much. I would like to say uh, I go to these budget subcommittees and so on, and uh, your presentation of the responses to our questions on the budget subcommittee were just outstanding. Thank I you. I really appreciate that. And so uh, with that, any other questions from the committee? Okay. Uh, yeah, we'll move it forward without objection. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Okay. Members of the committee. Okay. The, uh, Do we have a brief for these? Our next meeting is, is is uh, Tuesday. Uh, are we coming up on March already? I can't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I can't believe it. Yep. Uh, we're going to. It's Bill uh, previously heard, and uh, we're going to be reconsidering the HB 106. That's the uniform. Uh, inter-child support uh, parentage, it, look, it looks like. So that was an interesting hearing before, and uh, we need to see what we can do on that. So again, if nothing else from the committee, we are adjourned, and thank you, everybody. Oh.